Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Jodie Pico is the author of a staggering 25 internationally best-selling novels, including The Storyteller, Small Great Things, and My Sister's Keeper, which moved millions to tears and was later made into a film starring Cameron Diaz. Her latest novel, Wish You Were Here, is out this Thursday and follows Diana, an ambitious young appraiser at Sotheby's in New York. She's about to go on a long-awaited holiday where she knows Finn, her surgeon boyfriend, will propose, and the next stage of her carefully planned life will begin but it is Friday the 13th of March 2020 and we all know uh, what happened next the virus hits uh, Jody Pico uh, welcome to Times Radio and um, first of all this is quite a fast turnover for the literary world isn't it in terms of story to publication it is um, I feel like I broke a land speed record writing this <laughs> And uh, I feel like my publisher broke a land speed record getting it out there. I think I had editorial comments five days after I gave in the book. It was insane, just insane. And and were you, I mean, is that partly because you, you felt that this was a story that had to get out there fast because it connects to the pandemic? Well, for me, I, I never anticipated publishing this book. I, I was not contracted to write it. It is the book I never wanted or intended to write. Um, but it was something that I did really actually therapeutically because I had a very intense lockdown in America. I have asthma. So I went into lockdown in March of 2020 and I didn't leave my house until I was vaccinated 15 months later. And um, I would only go outside to hike, to be outside, you know, um, in the woods with nobody around, basically. And uh, it was hard. It was hard for me to have my whole life upended like that. And I... I remembered what it was like to be a writer. So I found myself at my desk sort of going through the motions and I worked on a manuscript with a co-author, Jenny Boylan, that's coming out in 2022. And it got to be the fall of 2020. And I still didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it was really overwhelming for me. 
And I wanted to make sense of it. So I, I sat down and, and started to think about how we as writers tell the story of the pandemic. Um, was it the first time, I presume it was, uh, you know, as it was for many people, where you had to confront the idea of your own mortality, you know, particularly as an asthma sufferer who had to take, um, you know, the pandemic very seriously indeed? Absolutely. I mean, I was I was really scared because, um, you know, we kept seeing pictures of what this virus does to lungs and my lungs are not good on a good day. So um, I just didn't think that if I if I got sick, I imagined I'd go into the hospital and I'd wind up on a respirator and I didn't know if I'd survive. And that was that was terrifying. It was really, really scary. And what were the um, what, what was the sort of existential uh, impact of that on you? What were the subjects that your your mind went surfing on? Well, I mean, to be honest, it it really I had to kind of find meaning in, in this whole pandemic. I want, there's a part of my brain that really wants to believe this happened for a reason. And of course, you know, it's not like we were being smited by, by someone. And that's why we, the whole country, the whole universe wound up in a pandemic. I I think that though, I wanted to understand that if we were forced as, as an entire planet to push pause, we had to get something out of that. So what did we learn what has changed and how do we move forward with that knowledge? Um, you know, we, this world's never going back to the way it was. So how do you move forward learning all these new little bits of yourself that you did learn in the last 16, 18 months um, that, that might make you live your life a little differently? And I do think we learned some really, really important things. Uh, you know, we all learned that loss is universal. Um, it's okay to grieve the things that we missed in the last 15 months. For some people, that was in-person schooling. For other people, it was a vacation, a wedding. It could have been the ultimate loss, a loved one. But we all suffered that sense of missing out and losing something. And that's okay because it's all right to grieve for that. And then I think I think we really rejiggered our idea of what success means. I think if you'd asked me in 2019, I would have said that the success was measured by titles or by uh, numbers on a bestseller list or by a promotion or something like that. Now, I think, am I healthy? Is my family healthy? Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have food? Am I able to hold the hand of someone I love when they're dying? I mean, really, who knew that was going to be a privilege, right? Um, and you know, now that we have all these senses of priorities being upended and maybe things that we never expected to be priorities becoming those high marks of success for us. How do we move forward in the future and keep that with us? So tell me how then you've managed to incorporate all of those uh, big themes in this story about Diana O'Toole and the life she's living at the beginning of the novel and and, and what happens to it. Well, basically, you decide to pull it all apart, don't you? Pretty cruel. (laughs) Well, so um, this, what happened was, while I was wrapping my head about how do authors commemorate and memorialize and um, give a historical accurate representation of the beginning of the pandemic, which by the way, we've all forgotten. We have forgotten when we thought it was going to be two weeks. We've forgotten when we used to leave our mail outside for 48 hours to disinfect it. We have forgotten how we used to wash our broccoli with soap and water. I mean, all those things were happening in March. Um, but I was trying to figure out how how to tell the story. And then I read a, a news account about a man who had 
traveled to Machu Picchu. He was a Japanese tourist and he got stuck in Machu Picchu when the country closed down. And instead of going home like other tourists, he decided to stay and became part of the community. And he wound up teaching local children martial arts and uh, making friends with people. And eventually the, the people who lived there petitioned the government to open up the historic site so that he would finally have a chance to see what he comes no, to stop see. it. That's right? such a great story. Right. It's such a cool story. So he did that. And um, I thought, okay, well, what is it like to be in paradise when the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you know? And I started to think about that, but I've never been to Machu Picchu and I certainly wasn't going there in 2020. Where have I been that is a bucket list destination? And I kind of racked my brain and I realized I'd been to the Galapagos years ago with my kids. It was one of the best trips we ever took as a family. And um, I started digging through all my photo albums and, and trying to remember what it was like to be there. And I thought, surely there was a tourist who got stuck in the Galapagos. And I did a little online research and found a young Scottish man who got stuck on Isabella Island for months. And then I tracked him down and interviewed him and interviewed all the people he lived with and all the friends that he made there. And I began to craft a story about a fictional woman, Diana, who, like you said, has her whole life planned out until the moment everything begins to go wrong. And she winds up um, on the verge of going away to the Galapagos with her boyfriend on this bucket list trip. And he is told, I can't leave New York City. They won't let us leave. They think there's this pandemic coming. You should still go. We paid for the trip. And so she does. She goes out of her comfort zone to a country where she doesn't speak the language and where her lodging doesn't work out to be what it is. And she is at the mercy of strangers in a place where there's no internet, really, and very little cell service. And she's quite disconnected from the rest of the world while it's on fire. And, um, you know, the thing about the Galapagos that was almost, um, I guess, unconsciously brilliant is that it's the seat of the story of evolution, right? It's where Darwin came up with natural selection and that whole theory. And what is that? It's that when a species is put under pressure and faces adversity, they either adapt and survive or they don't. And that pretty much is what 2020 was for the human race. So it was really fun to play around with that as well. And of course, there is a tremendous twist in this book that I won't give away, but I will tell you that in 25 books, I think this is the biggest twist I've ever written. Wow. Uh, well, I won't give it away either then. Um, <laughs> but of course, D Darwin was quite concerned with the survival of the fittest. I think you've slightly mitigated that theory. <laughs> that he did or I did? <laughs> that, no, no. That, that you, because I think that, 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 that here it, it is the adapter who is the fittest in a way that, that oh, that's that, exactly that, the point. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the idea is that it is willing, it's being willing and accepting change that makes you able to thrive. Um, you know, that honestly is, we're not talking about the physical attributes that might make someone wind up with long COVID. We're talking about how, when you learn things about yourself that might not be very flattering about how you've lived your life or how you've settled or how you've held on to a goal that somehow along the way became something you don't really want. Um, some people just put their nose down and keep going. A lot of people live their life that way and wind up very unhappy. And I think that one of the silver linings of this pandemic was that it gave everyone a moment to reflect on who they are, who they love, who they want in their lives, who they miss in their lives when they're not there. And that that trumps everything else, everything else. Uh, tell me then, uh, what did you learn in your 15 months extreme incarceration? <laughs> well, I learned that I am 
the ultimate control freak. Uh, <laughs> I might have known that going in, but I, I don't think I realized how unseemed I would feel when I couldn't make anything better, you know? And I think a lot of physicians felt that way too. They were trained, of course, to heal, and there was nothing they could do for COVID patients at the beginning. And, you know, for me, knowing that whenever there's a problem, my way of attacking it is, okay, you know, let's get hands together, head down. How do we figure this out? What's the way out of it? There was no way out of it. I couldn't fix this. I couldn't do anything but wait until scientists, brilliant scientists, came up with a vaccine that I think at least gave me armor in a war. And um, I think that was really hard for me, seeding all control of a situation and having to just wait. I'm not good with waiting. I also realized that um, I went through my emails one day, my saved emails, and I realized I spend more time getting from point A to point B to do an event or to do research than I actually do at any place. I, I was traveling all the time. And that seemed really strange to me that there was so much wasted time in my life just getting from point A to point B. And the other thing I realized was that the things that I expected to bring me joy in 2020 did not happen as planned. I was supposed to be opening a musical adaptation of one of my books that I've been working on for eight years. It was gonna be off Broadway. It was a tremendous finish line to cross and it was supposed to happen in April, 2020. Obviously it didn't, uh, Broadway shut down. And instead, joy for me in 2020 came from playing a children's school game called Foursquare um, with my adult children who were living nearby and had, they were isolating. And also we merged our bubbles at a certain point in 2020. And, you know, if you had told me that playing Foursquare with my adult kids on my driveway was going to be the high point of 2020, I would have laughed at you. But it really was because it was extra time with busy children who are grown, you know, who don't often have time to spend with you. Mm. And I think boring in those moments is really important. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jodie, I just wondered on the subject of seeding control as a fellow control freak, uh, whether it was actually a relief once you realised that there was nothing you could do about anything, just to stop ha- carrying the world on your shoulders. No, it did not feel like a relief to me. Oh. It was really hard for me. And even I still remember, I always kept um, a little like overnight suitcase in my bedroom because I was always packing and unpacking. And I remember the day I moved it to my attic because I realized I wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. And I remember crying when I did it because it was just such a different kind of life for me. You know, I was always on the go. I have not spent this much time in one place, you know, probably since I was a little kid. Uh, It it was a, a complete rejiggering of understanding who I was and what my purpose was. So, really hard. 
so interesting. I think I, I just have to tell you, you've got a lot in common with Patty Smith, who we talked to during the <laughs> lockdown. She was locked down in her apartment in New York. And she said she always keeps a bag packed, ready to go anywhere when anyone suggests anything. And, and she just she said she would get tears in her eyes looking at the bag sitting on the on the kitchen floor, <laughs> going, going nowhere. Um, you, you tackle some pretty weighty stuff. In your novels, you know, you, you've run the gamut from racism, autism, euthanasia, death penalty, and yet you're described as writing commercial fiction. So um, you, are you trying to scupper that description of you or do you think it's just really important to bring those kinds of topics to a bigger audience? I think that commercial and literary fiction are very arbitrary labels that are usually created by marketing departments. And when I was starting out, I remember being sort of pushed in one direction or the other and making the very, very cognizant decision to be a commercial writer because I wanted more people to read what I wrote. Um, it wasn't going to change the quality of my writing. And I think there is an uh, unfortunate, um, I would say, uh, an unfortunate misconception that commercial fiction is poorly written. I don't believe that at all. I've read poorly written literary fiction and I've read excellent commercial fiction. It's really just about print runs and how often you can produce a book more than anything else. Um, to me, I'm not doing anything new. Uh, if you want to talk about social commentary, getting to the masses through commercially appealing fiction, look back to Dickens, look back to Jane Austen. They did it long before I did. Um, and I like to think that the things that I'm writing about are things that everybody is concerned with, everybody is worrying about. Uh, that's why the topics I choose feel fresh to me. And that's why they land in my lap. Um, I want to know the answers to these things. And I think, I, I hope my readers do as well. You mentioned Dickens and Jane Austen. Do you think, um, perhaps particularly as a, as a woman writer, you have to be dead to be taken seriously as a, you know, if you've been dismissed as a commercial writer in your lifetime? Mariella, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> oh, I really you know, want to. <laughs> yeah, the truth is, I, I am a very big uh, vocal, um, uh, I think, foghorn for gender discrimination in publishing. Uh, it is very real. It is very ridiculous. Um, most people will tell you that I write chiclet or that I write women's fiction, neither of which is an accurate label. Um, about 49% of my fan mail comes from men. And chiclet is usually described as a genre, which is like a beach read, something light and fluffy. And to be quite honest, I would write the worst chiclet ever. My books are not like that. Now, I love the genres. They're great. All genres are great. But um, when most people say someone writes women's fiction or chiclet, what they really mean is the author is female. You never hear about a man writing men's fiction, do you? Um, women are expected to read both men and women, but very few men will actually read a female author, which makes zero sense. Mm -hmm. And um, the reality is that those labels say more about the the gender of the author than they do the uh, quality or the content of the writing. There are plenty of men who have written books that if they had a fluffy pink cover on them would be considered chick lit instead of literary fiction. Do you think Jonathan Franzen writes chiclet? Because I did notice you created oh. quite a Twitter storm. <laughs> I don't think he writes chiclet, but I do think he writes some pretty good family drama. And that's usually considered to be the domain of, you know, an Ann Tyler, a Sue Miller, what, what you would call women's fiction. So, yeah, sure. I, I mean, if he were a woman, his books would be called women's fiction. 
Um, you, you mentioned again, you know, just going back to your to your lockdown. You know, the, the, one of the things about about lockdown, particularly for um, the length of time you were locked down, is that it gives you time to fume and ruminate. Um, did you get angrier about those those issues during that period of time, or do you think that actually you learnt to to let them go more because I, you you know with with only that to think about, it could drive you crazy. Yeah, you know, um, I will say that that's why I forced myself to write. I mean, I, I wrote two manuscripts during a 15 month period, which is pretty unprecedented. Um, and I did it because I needed to I needed to remember who I was, you know, and I was like, OK, I'm not doing a normal book tour and I'm not things aren't publishing the way they should. But I'm still a writer. Right. So I can come up to my desk and I can sit down and I can work, um, you know, but that said, I. I had a terrible time focusing on anything. It was hard for me to read. It took a lot to remember the the practice of writing and to to make it um, flow and to make it right again. Like I had to kind of get back, get my gears cranking again. Um, And I, I honestly was more frustrated politically than I was in terms of the drama behind publishing. You know, I, for me in America, it was a really hard time. <laughs> um, you know, we were in the middle of the biggest crisis ever and we didn't have real leadership. And that was really, really hard and frustrating. Do you feel I mean, I know you, you were quite vociferous uh, in, in your feelings about Donald Trump. Do you feel like you're in safer hands now? I know we are in safer hands now. And, you know, here's the one thing I will say about Joe Biden. Um, I had the opportunity to interview him when he wrote his book about his son and his son's death. And I was his conversation partner on a stage in Burlington, Vermont. And before the event, my husband and I were there and my niece who was in college in Vermont and her boyfriend were taken back to the green room to sit and you know meet him. He gave us big hugs. He sat down with us. And for an hour, he was so involved in asking questions about us, about what my niece was studying. Um, He he was 100% there. Like you honestly believed he cared. He actually took uh, my phone and he called my son who was in law school at the time and left a message for him saying, you're going to, you know, good luck with law school. You're going to ace the bar. I mean, he was just lovely and so compassionate. And when people in the audience ask questions about the death of a loved one, because he'd been through it so many times, you could feel that compassion it was so incredibly real and um, and and forefront in his mind. And the former occupant of the White House did, I don't, I don't think he has any compassion and I don't think he thinks beyond himself. So in just that sense that Joe Biden puts almost everyone before himself, we are in much better hands. You mentioned your son there um, and I know that... Um... He came out as gay when you were writing Sing You Home. Were you ever worried about tackling a theme that was so personal to your child? Well, that's a different son. But oh, okay. <laughs> that's okay. That was my oldest son. I was and trying yeah, to do a was... nice segue there, but I failed completely. <laughs> it, was, it, no, it was totally great. Um, that was my oldest son. And he, yeah, he actually came out while I was in the middle of writing that book. And the interesting thing was, you know, this was gay rights was something I, I had many gay friends. I was very passionate about it. I believed in gay parenting, all those things. And I, um, I really felt like, uh, they're for, probably calling to tell you to stop yeah, now, mom. Stop yeah, now. Else would grab that downstairs. Sorry. I was like, Oh yeah, I gotta move my phone today. Forgot that. Um, but, uh, yeah, 
No, I, I think that for me, I was writing from a really theoretical standpoint about something I believed in. And then my son came out literally in the middle of writing the book. And all of a sudden I was like a mom on a mission. Like I'm going to make the world a better place for him. So if anything, um, I felt more investment in the topic when I was writing it. And I, what I will always remember about that book is that when I went on book tour at every event, I had some young person who'd been turned out of their house by their parents because their parents didn't accept their sexuality. And I got to the point where I started finding the names of youth shelters in the cities I was going to before I went so that I could at least provide them with a resource when they told me they had nowhere to go. Um, and it was devastating. It was really sad to know that there are a lot of kids, even still, who do not have the reaction that uh, Kyle had with their family, um, you know, when they, they come mm. out to them. It's interesting that you say that um, uh, exposure to it in real life uh, stopped it being theoretical uh, for you and, and stopped your book being theoretical. And uh, just going back to uh, when you said earlier that you found a young Scottish man who had been stranded uh, in the Galapagos. Um, how important or why is it important to you to hear a real story before you embark on a fictional one? Is it, is it in order to, to, to kind of dissipate yeah. that, that theoretical tendency? You know, I'm a research hog. I love it. And I think that very often when I'm talking to someone who has actually lived the experience that I have not lived, I can feel my brain catching on certain words that they say. I can feel it veering off into different directions and knowing I'm going to write a certain scene. Um, it feels very much like the seed that's planted. And then the flower that grows from it might be completely different than what they, might, they would have expected given their own experience. But, you know, for me, I still need that nugget, that seed of truth to build from. So what do you start with? Do you start with topic um, or do you start with a character? Uh, or, or what do you start with? Uh, I usually start with topic and it's usually something that lands on my lap. A lot of people think like, oh, you're, you're going through the news every day to find the hottest topic. And I really don't. I think it's just the things that kind of keep me up at night that I, I really am thinking about or worrying about or that I can't, can't sort out in my head. And, and those change depending on kind of where I am in my life. I was very focused on um, things that can happen with your kids when I, my kids were younger. And then as they got older and seemed to be able to make their way in the world, I started to think a little more globally into like the nature of good and evil or uh, abortion rights or um, racism, things that were a little more global. And, uh, you know, so who knows where I'm headed in the future. But what happens after I, I sort of settle on a topic is characters almost pop up like little mushrooms and begin to take the story away from me in some way. And um, that is ultimately, you know, where, where it starts. Um, I don't start writing until I know the first line of the story. And, and that like, like that the reins are let go at that point. Tackling the subjects um, that you do, um, you know, racism, quite controversial, uh, autism, you know, uh, euthanasia, the death penalty, all kinds of things that that actually can quite rile a reading audience. Um, would, would, my, it makes me wonder what your inbox is like and why it is that you take such responsibility for interaction with your readers. Because I think a lot of people are feeling more and more like they don't want to engage particularly on social media because it's such a, a, such a difficult place to find yourself if you have opinions about anything. I think that's a really great question. I think a lot of people get brave on social media in a way that they wouldn't face to face. I get a lot of hate mail. Um, I always I answer everybody. 
I answer everybody, no matter what, uh, what they say. Um, and I do it in a very measured way. Sometimes they're shocked. I answer like they just, they want to, they want to get their vitriol out and they, uh, you know, they, they aren't expecting a response. Um, and some people I will go back and forth with multiple times and cite examples and studies and whatever it is that I need to back up whatever opinion I'm supporting of my own. Um, there are some people that you just, you know, you write back and you let them know, yeah, I saw this message and yeah, that wasn't a really nice thing to say, um, you know, and then you don't, you don't engage again. But I think it's important to model the behavior I ask for in my books in real life, which is to have a conversation, to hear all sides of a conversation, and ultimately to present as much information as you can about all sides of an issue in the hopes that somebody begins to evaluate their opinions in a different way, Mm. you know? And so for me, that is really important. I've been getting a lot of hate mail recently because I'm going on an in-person book tour in America. And I have said, I'm going to do this, but I am requiring proof of vaccination and masking for everyone who attends. Now I'm doing that because as I pointed out, I have asthma at this point, I am vaccinated and boosted and I am taking every precaution that I can. And I think for a book like this, which is about how we move into a post-pandemic world, this is a really good way to model. How do we go about moving in society again and doing the things that brought us joy in a safe way? Um, But I have had a lot of hate mail from people who are telling me that I am endorsing a Nazi state because I'm asking for proof of vaccination, um, which is... uh, that is absolutely not even a valid parallel in the least. And, uh, you know, and honestly, I, I, what I usually write back is I don't understand why your choice not to show a vaccine card trumps my choice to keep myself safe. <coughs> excuse me. Right. <laughs> absolutely. But does it mean you have to take security, <coughs> excuse me, on tour with you? Mm. No, nah, not at all. Because like I said, people are much bolder behind a keyboard than they are in person. I mean, no one's going to show up and throw a fit at an event, you know, just don't come to the event. If you don't want to show your vaccine card, I'm offering an online event. You don't have to show anything to join that. But these are people who just want to pick a fight because in America right now, we have a lot of anti-vaxxers and, you know, they are trying to make a point that um, they don't want uh, the government involved in vaccination, which of course, if they did their actual homework and studied American history, they would realize that all of those founding fathers that they cite were actually very pro-vaccination and that we probably would still be part of your country if we hadn't inoculated against smallpox. <laughs> You're clearly not afraid of expressing your opinion. Just finally, are you afraid of being cancelled? Because uh, these are difficult times if, if, if you feel that you want to be able to say what you think. Um, cancel culture is a whole thing. And, you know, the truth is that uh, people are so reactionary in so many ways on social media Um, I think that uh, there's always, someone's always going to try to cancel you. That happens all the time. But I think that it is more important to, if you, if you have a platform, if you have a podium, if you have people who are actually waiting to hear something from you and like to hear something from you, I think it's your responsibility to ask yourself, what is it that I'm going to speak up and say? And if you are afraid of being canceled and because of that, you will never really have an honest conversation or broach a topic um, out of fear, then I don't think you're using your platform well. Thanks for 
for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.